You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. In the words of N.T. Wright, Trinity Sunday is where you find yourself when, having been swept off your feet by the rushing mighty wind of Pentecost, you get up, dust yourself down, and survey your new surroundings. It's a brief pause between that Pentecost story of the coming of the Holy Spirit we told last week the beginning next Sunday of the long journey through ordinary time. And unlike any other feast day in the calendar, Trinity Sunday celebrates not a person or an event or a story, but rather a doctrine. Now the celebration of a doctrine might sound like a rather dull idea at first glance, But if you think in terms of Bishop Wright's idea that it is a day to survey your new surroundings, it begins to get a little more interesting. Specifically, it is a day to consider what it means to be a people who believe in the triune God, who creates, redeems, and sustains And does that not to us as Christians, not only to us as Christians, but for the whole of creation? When it comes to selecting the readings for the day, the architects of the lectionary are faced with a bit of a challenge. As there is no point in the scriptures where the words trinity or triune appear, The doctrine is firmly rooted in the Bible. It in no way contradicts the scriptures, but it is really only articulated over the course of the first 300 years of the church's life. Why is this so? Well, to begin with, the disciples and early followers of Jesus had a strong and foundational belief in the one God, specifically as understood in Judaism. Yet, they also understood Jesus to be from God or of God, and then gradually began to see the depths of that. This is shown in Peter's declaration, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and then even more robustly in the words of Thomas, when he comes into contact with the risen Christ and says, my Lord and my God. So now we have this, the one God of Judaism, the the creator, the father, and this experience of Jesus himself being my Lord and my God. To this is then added the experience of Pentecost, which rolled forward into every facet of the life of the early Christian community, Namely, that God was also present to them in and through the Holy Spirit, as close to them as their own breath, guiding, comforting, leading, and sustaining them. 
And so began the attempts at articulating this belief that while there was but one God, they are monotheists rooted in Jewish theology after all, yet there were three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The writers and theologians of the first three centuries used an array of imagery and poetic metaphor, drew on the categories of Greek philosophy as well as biblical teaching, and slowly made their way to the language of the Nicene Creed, which we will proclaim after the sermon this evening. But this still left the architects of the lectionary with the challenge of appointing readings for the day. For not only for one Trinity Sunday, but for each of the three years in the lectionary cycle, there's sets of readings. In the end, they turn to the sort of texts which would have informed the early church as it tried to speak to the idea of a trinity, of a triune God, which is what we find in the readings tonight from Isaiah. We have a reading that speaks to the holiness of God, but also to God's sovereignty. It's interesting. The text opens by identifying it as being the year that King Uzziah died. For in Isaiah's strange dreamlike vision, he will say, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Human kings like Uzziah all die. But this king, this Lord of hosts, transcends death. Of course, Isaiah is not completely sure that being in the presence of such holiness is a good or safe thing. As he says, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This doesn't seem to be a particularly big deal for God in the vision, as one of the seraphs is sent over to Isaiah to touch his lips with a burning coal and proclaim him forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So this story, this dream vision from Isaiah is a calling story as well as a text on the holiness and sovereignty of God. And in a way, the story of Nicodemus from the Gospel according to John is also a kind of a calling story. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Apparently, Jesus has caught his interest and attention. So he comes to see Jesus by night, quite probably so that no one would see him in the company of the Galilean peasant rabbi. And Nicodemus opens with some niceties. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus, though, is singularly disinterested in this sort of polite discourse. And so he says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Born from above is the translation of the New Revised Standard Version. It's important to note that the Greek word anothen can mean from above or again 
or anew. So maybe the most dynamic translation would be, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anew from above, which speaks both to a dramatically new beginning and to the fact that it can only come from God. Or, even more to the point, on Trinity Sunday, it can only come in and through the Spirit, for Jesus speaks quite explicitly of being born of the Spirit. So what that gives us between the two readings is a proclamation of the holiness and the sovereignty of the one God, who is also made known in both Jesus the Christ and in the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the three who are yet one? Well, it's classically summed up in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is a calling story, albeit one quite different from the story of Isaiah's vision. Why does Nicodemus come to see Jesus? Curiosity? Doing a little investigative work to see if Jesus is maybe going to be a problem? Or is he honestly thirsting for more and wondering if Jesus might be able to help? Whatever his motives, he begins with that little bit of nicety of which Jesus will have no part. Nicodemus, Jesus essentially says to him, what you really need is a whole new beginning, something like a complete rebirth. You're not going to be able to manufacture that yourself, my friend. That's something that you have to allow the Spirit of God to work in you. If you're ready for that, buckle your seatbelt. Because God is doing a whole new thing here for the sake of the whole world. Jesus is calling Nicodemus to drop his guard, set aside his religious presuppositions, and open himself to a whole new way of being one of God's children, which is not an easy thing to do when your starting point is a fixed commitment to your present way of believing. It's all you've ever known. As John tells the story about midway through, this stops being a conversation and becomes a monologue. Nicodemus falls silent to the point of pretty much disappearing from the scene. Yet, in a detail unique to the Gospel according to John, Nicodemus does appear again on the day of the crucifixion to help Joseph of Arimathea place the body of Jesus in the tomb in the garden. John says that Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds and that with Joseph took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Think on that. 
hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes is a considerable financial cost. But beyond that, Nicodemus is now going quite public in his care for Jesus. Whatever else was called out from him on that dark night, there is now courage to not hide in the cover of the dark. Somehow the God Nicodemus has served as a Pharisee is now connected to the spirit which has birthed courage in him in service of the battered dead body of Jesus. Somehow it is all connected, which is the point of Trinity Sunday. In the world created, redeemed, and sustained by the triune God, everything is ultimately connected. I close with these thoughts from the biblical scholar Claudio Caravallis. For Christians, he writes, for Christians, this is how God moves, relates, dances, and manifests God's self in the world, always through relations. In many ways, the Trinity is an entanglement that keeps unfolding back and forth, a sign and metaphor for our own ways of living together, being different, and yet being a part of the same life. With Isaiah, with Nicodemus, with Joseph of Arimathea, and all who have trodden this path before us, tangled and tied to one another in the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.